Hello friends at the well. It is so good to be with you today. I'm so appreciative of and honored by the invitation from Pastor Ryan, who is a dear friend and somebody I respect and admire so much in the work he's doing there, the work you're doing there as a community. Um, from our community in Nashville, we send all of our best. Uh, we send our greetings and we're so thankful for the work you're doing in the world. Um, when uh, Pastor Ryan invited me to speak, I was thinking about what I might talk about and I thought maybe I would just share something that's pretty fresh in my mind and fresh uh, in my heart. And that is, uh, I'm currently working on my very first book. It's called Bible Stories for Grownups. And in the book, what I'm hoping to do is to, is to take a grown-up lens to stories that many of us have heard our entire lives. And the issue is that we were given a lens as kids through which to see these stories. Uh, but that lens hasn't changed as we've grown up. And our lens for everything else changes. Uh, but our lens for these stories hasn't. And so I'm writing this book to try to say, what if we come back to some of these well-known stories and look at them and ask different questions about them? One of the stories I'm looking at is a parable that Jesus tells. And that's what I want to talk about today. It's called the parable of the talents. It's from Matthew chapter 25. And it's a story that I've heard my whole life. It's a story that I've assumed I knew what the interpretation was my whole life. But over the last several years, as I've been wrestling with the context in which it is told and the context of the Jesus story, it's actually led me to some different conclusions. And I want to uh, offer those today. But before we jump into actually reading the parable and wrestling with what it might mean, let's spend a few moments talking about what a parable is. Because that's another thing, right? Like we have these assumptions about what a parable might be or that maybe we've had our entire lives, but maybe there's actually something else going on there. Now, the word parable in Greek simply means to cast alongside. It's essentially taking two things, one thing that is known and one thing maybe that is unknown or that is mysterious or this, maybe this is the known thing and this is the thing you're deeply, desperately wanting to explain to someone. And so you try to compare them. Sometimes it's a contrast, but often it's a comparison. Jesus will often begin telling these stories like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which in the language of the gospel of Matthew, where we're going to be today, uh, kingdom of heaven replaces kingdom of God, which is often uh, Matthew writing uh, as a very likely a Jewish author re reflecting the Jewish posture of, of not even saying or using the name God, right? So heaven would be a way of saying like, if we were to talk about something that was happening um, with the president of the United States, we might say the White House released a report or the White House released a statement. And we actually know that the White House itself doesn't speak, right? We know, we know that it's actually coming from the administration. So kingdom of heaven is kind of like that. And so Jesus is trying to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he understands that what he's telling people will be counterintuitive. It'll be challenging. It'll be upside down, inside out. It'll be uh, transformational. It, it'll be different than what people are used to hearing. And so he comes at it through parables to put two things alongside each other so that one can try to give some, uh, some light around and explain the other. Now, I grew up hearing that a parable was an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? Jesus told a story about something on earth to reflect truths about heaven, about where we'll go someday when we die. I actually want to flip that on its head a little bit. I want to say it like this. A parable is a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. It's a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. And here's what I mean. Jesus used parables to describe what the kingdom of God is like. And for Jesus, the kingdom of God wasn't where we go when we die. The kingdom of God wasn't someplace above the clouds. The kingdom of God for Jesus is 
this reality that is possible, this, this invitation to participate in a different way of being human, a different way of ordering the world, a different way of uh, holding our resources, a different way of seeing our neighbor, a different way of seeing our enemy, this way that is challenging to the kingdoms and the empires and the systems of this present world, both then and now. Jesus is saying, look, there's this reality that's possible that you don't have to wait to enter when you die. There's a reality that you can enter into right now called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And here's what it's like, and here's how it interacts with the world. Jesus isn't telling stories about how to go to heaven when you die. He's telling stories about what it would look like for the world to be transformed while we live. And for Jesus, that kingdom of God vision that he wants to bring to bear on the world is a vision of a world, a reality of justice, peace, compassion, equity, ultimately a, a reality governed by love, love of God, love of self, love of neighbor, love of enemy. And it's something he's inviting them to experience. And it's so outside of the frame of reference that he's using parables to try to explain it. And so today we're going to look at this particular parable in Matthew chapter 25 called the parable of the talents. And just so you understand on the front end what a talent was, um, a talent is, a, is both a unit of weight, it was essentially roughly 80 pounds, and it's also a unit of currency, and it was worth a lot of money, somewhere around 6,000 denarii. And a denarius was the equivalent of a day's wage for a laborer. So somebody who would get up every day and go and work, they would get paid a denarius. And so a denarius, a, a talent was 6,000 days wages. That's more than 16 years pay. And we're going to be looking at m not just one talent often in the story, we're going to look at multiple units. So just understand a talent, if, if you forget, oh, it's 6,000 days, just remember this. One talent is a lot even today is a lot of money. Okay, so here we go. Matthew chapter 25, 14 through 30. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version updated edition. And Jesus is teaching this parable. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents. Remember, one talent's a lot. This, this particular serving, it's five. To another two and to another one each according to his ability. Then the master went away. At once the one who had received the five talents uh, went off and traded with them and made five more talents, doubled. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents, doubled. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who'd received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here is what's yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, 
that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was mine plus interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does that story sound familiar to you? Is that a familiar parable? Um, It's one I heard sermonized on many, many countless times growing up. Now, here's a fun fact that if you're ever, you find yourself at a gathering, at a party, and it's kind of getting dull, and you think, you know what would really be helpful is if I brought out some Bible trivia, uh, that may, like, that, if that's a thing. Uh, the fun fact is that the meaning most of us associate with the word talent, which means like a special ability or skill, was derived from this particular parable, and it began to be used this way in the mid-15th century. Um, which I just find interesting that the, our word talent, like when we have talent shows, right? People come up and do, they, they sing, they dance, they do magic tricks, they do their thing that actually comes from this parable. Um, but, and it comes from the interpretation of the parable, right? Like this, this, uh, and, and, and it comes from this idea that the master gave the servants certain amounts of, of, of investment money based on their ability, right? So then you have this idea of a talent. So just follow that away if you're ever at a party that hits a wall. Um, now, the traditional interpretation of this text is that the man who goes away on the journey is God or Jesus, that he invests his servants, that's you and me, with gifts and abilities, and that we're responsible for what we do with them, and that someday when uh, Jesus were to come back and he would, we would sort of call us to account for what we've done, we would then have to give an answer for how we used our abilities and how we didn't. And the, the, like the most extreme version of this parable I heard when I was growing up is that if you don't use your abilities well, you get kicked out, right? You're done. You're, you're not going to get the optimum afterlife experience. You're gonna, it's going to go south literally pretty quick. Um, is that what's going on? And in the, sermon, in the story, the servants that invest the money and double it are the ones who are praiseworthy. And the servant who buries the talent is the bad one. It's the villain. It's the evil person, the person who doesn't use what God has given them well and just sort of refuses to participate with what God is doing. I, I want to ask you to join me in setting that interpretation aside. I know it's hard. I know it's hard when you've, you've looked through a particular pair of lenses forever at a story, at a, at a text. It can be really hard to come back to that story with fresh eyes. But I want to encourage us, I want to invite us to just, we all know the the standard interpretation. Let's just bracket that and set it over here. And let's just walk through this story. And let's just see what emerges when we walk through the story and just read and ask a few questions about what's going on. So let's begin with this. Jesus begins the parable by saying, for it is as if a man going on a journey. What is the it here? For it is like a man going on a journey. Well, the it here is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is trying to explain. And if, if you read the chapters that come before this, that becomes really pretty evident. Jesus is trying to explain to his listeners what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like. And to set this whole thing within context, you have to understand that Jesus tells this parable, not just on a random day, in a random week, in, in a random interaction, that this particular parable with the others around it, Jesus tells during what we call Holy Week. And Holy Week for Christians is the week 
that leads up to Easter. It is the last week of Jesus' life before his execution and resurrection. It is a week full of conflict. It is a week full of tension. It is a week that begins on Palm Sunday, but then by the time we get to Friday, it ends with Jesus being executed by the Romans on a Roman cross. So that has to count. And what I mean by count is, is that the, where Jesus tells the story, the, the context surrounding the story, has to be one of the lenses through which we read the story. Because if we read it as if Jesus just randomly was telling a, ta- a parable, a tale, trying to teach, like, no, 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 this is not just a random parable Jesus is telling on a random Tuesday. This is a story, a parable, a, a casting alongside of this, so you can understand this, that Jesus tells in the week leading up to his arrest and execution by the, at that time, the largest empire and military superpower that the world had ever seen. So just keep that in mind. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God and he's heading to his death. I would imagine, put it like this, Jesus is is saying this is what the kingdom is like and, and what does it mean for him to be saying that knowing where he's headed in no time? So the man goes on a journey. The kingdom of God is like a man who goes on a journey and he summons his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to their ability. It's kind of important for us to understand this story to uh, to have a little bit of a crash course in how the economy worked in the first century world of Jesus. And here's what you need to know. The vast majority of people in Jesus' world um, were members of the peasant class, which means that they were people who lived at a subsistence level, if that. Um, so when Jesus taught them to pray, give us today our daily bread, that wasn't poetry, right? That wasn't just a nice thing to say. It was a, a literal request for if we can just get enough food to eat today and then we'll worry about tomorrow. That, that's how most people in Jesus' world lived. Now, they were the victims, those folks, the vast majority, the 90-some percent, were the victims of the much smaller 1% to 2% of wealthy landowners. And the economy is what um, often scholars of the first century call an exploitative economy. right? It exploited the vast majority of people for the benefit of the few. Listen to the way William Herzog II in his book Parables as Subversive Speech uh, frames it. The elites use their wealth to make loans to peasant farmers so that the farmers could plant crops. Interest rates were high. Estimates ranged to 60% and perhaps as high as 200% for loans on crops. So just think about that. They're making loans as high as 200% interest. The purpose of making such loans was not so much to make a large profit, at least by the standards of the ancient world, but to accept land as collateral so that the elites could foreclose on their loans in years when the crops would not cover the incurred debtedness. So this economy is designed for the wealthiest of the wealthy, the one to 2% to gobble up all of the land so that they had a stranglehold on the land, on the crops and on the economy itself. So people who worked a trade, somebody who might be a carpenter, for example. And by the way, the word carpenter that actually in the New Testament is more like a stonemason is what we would use the language. But a person of trade, a stonemason, a carpenter, for example, would be someone who had been a victim of this system. Because the the idea was 
within Israel that everybody would have family land. Everybody had land that had been given to them. In the story in the Hebrew scriptures, God had given each of the tribes of Israel land. And that land would be passed down, and it was never to be taken for perpetuity. It was never to be lost forever. There was this idea of jubilee that every 50 years, everybody would receive their, we'd reset everything to zero, everybody gets their land back, and we start fresh. So nobody should ever lose their land forever. But by the time we get to the first century, somebody who is working a trade, that means they do not have a plot of land that they're farming. It means that they likely have been in a situation just like Herzog describes. They've lost their family land to an exploitative economy. Now, the wealthy would often use groups of people that they would, we would call like retainers, people that, who existed within their orbit, who they trusted to be the go-between, uh, and be, they were the actual people who got their hands dirty. So the powerful and wealthy often would be the ones who were doing, they would be the ones controlling behind the scenes, and there would be people who would go out there and get their hands dirty. They would do the work of exploitation on behalf of the masters, on behalf of the powerful. And in the process, they would benefit, right? They would, they would be able to take a little skim off the top. They would, they would benefit well for themselves. And, and so as we move forward, remember, this economy that is being reflected in this parable is the economy that everybody who was listening to Jesus would have known because 99.999% of the people listening to Jesus were victims of this kind of economy. By the way, another reference to the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus teaches the petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, I also don't think he's talking about forgive us our sins and transgressions as we forgive those who sin against us. I think he's actually talking about debt because debt and what to bread and debt for the people in the ancient world were the two most pressing concerns of their daily life. How are we going to get bread and what are we going to do about our debt? And so this wealthy master calls the servants gives them property to go out and do, do uh, investments with, do out and make money on, and then the master goes away. The servant who had first been given an amount was given five talents, and that servant goes and doubles it. And when the servant doubles it, he's praised. Well done. Uh, enter into your master's joy. You've been faithful with a little bit. I'm going to entrust you with a lot. And so the second servant had two talents, doubled it, brings back four and gets a similar. You've been so faithful in a few things. I'm going to make you uh, in charge of a lot of things. Enter into your master's joy. But then there's this third servant, the, the one we would traditionally boo. He goes away and digs a hole and puts his master's money in it. And then the master comes back. And if we were to add sound effects to this story, this would be the moment when the master returns after a long time, this line would be followed with dun, 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 right? Because this is the moment when everybody is going to be held to account for what they've done. And again, the master celebrates the first two. You did good. You took what I gave you and you doubled it. You took what I gave you and invested in you and you, you set out to work in this exploitative economy and you were able to do really, really well. Let's celebrate. But this third servant doesn't do well. This third servant digs a hole and buries it because this third servant has a, a perspective on what this master is like. He says this, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid and I went and hid your, hid your talent in the ground. Here's what's yours. Let me ask you a question. We often associate God with this character. Is that what God sounds like? Is that what God is like? Harsh, 
reaping where he didn't sow, uh, gathering where he didn't scatter. Wants us to walk around in fear of if we don't measure up that this God is going to be angry with us and punish us. I know that's the God so many of us have grown up with. But also now so many of us are realizing that that actually doesn't seem to be the God that Jesus ever talks about. The God Jesus talks about is a God of love and mercy and compassion, a God who cares about the suffering of the world, a God who cares about the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, a God who wants hungry people to be fed, a God who wants sick people to find healing, a God wants people who have been exiled and alienated and outcast from community to find closeness and home. That's the God Jesus invites us to. Jesus actually teaches at one point, be complete in showing love to everyone like God is complete in showing love to everyone. For Jesus, this God sends rain not only on the good, the righteous, but also on the bad, the unrighteous. And in an agrarian society, rain is a good thing. It means your crops are getting a drink. It means your crops have the chance to flourish. This God has a general blessing and goodness for all humanity. Is that what this God is like? Now notice how this master responds. The master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I didn't sow and gather where I didn't scatter. Then you should have invested my money with the bankers and on my return I would have received what was mine with interest. Notice what the master doesn't do here. The master doesn't refute the image of him that the servant has. The master doesn't say, whoa, 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 you think that's who I am? You, you, you think that I'm harsh? You think that I'm unkind? You think that I'm unconcerned? You think that I care more about stuff than about you? You think I care more about how much money I make than about your well-being? You, you think that I would ever evaluate you based on your performance? That's not what the master does. The master says, yeah, you knew this about me. You knew how this conversation would go. The least you could have done is to go get, invest it so I can get some interest, by the way. This idea of taking interest was forbidden in the Torah, in the Jewish law. You were not allowed to take interest from other Israelites, from other Hebrews. And Jesus was well-versed in the law. Is this what God is like? Is God harsh? Is God vindictive? Is God just going around grabbing and taking and uh, without concern for other people? Is that what God is like? The master continues, so take the talent from him, the servant with one, and give it to the one with ten. For those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. And those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And as for this worthless slave, throw him out in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does this sound like God? Does this sound like Jesus? Now, not the Jesus that we grew up with, not the Jesus so many of us were taught. Does this sound like the Jesus we actually encounter in the stories of the Gospels? Harsh, uncaring, vindictive. Does it sound like Jesus to take from those who have little and give it to the already rich? It might sound like modern economics. It might sound like modern politics. It might sound like an exploitative ancient economy. But does that sound like Jesus? Is that what God is like? Now, what's interesting is 
often uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. And synoptic is a word that means seeing together. And the reason they're called that is because it's pretty clear that Mark was written first and that Matthew was probably next and then Luke. And, and Matthew and Luke were both aware of Mark. And so they include some similar stories. Now, what's fascinating, though, is when each of Matthew and Luke change Mark or make a shift or when they make a shift from each other. Listen to Luke tells a very similar story um, using a different unit of, of measurement. It doesn't call it a talent. But listen to how Luke begins this story, because Luke gives us a detail about when the story takes place that's helpful. It's from Luke 19, verse 11. As they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So get this, they're coming to Jerusalem. And the folks with Jesus know they're near the city. And they're expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately. We're going to go into the city and the kingdom of justice and peace will appear. We're going to go into the city and suddenly the kingdom of everybody having enough will appear. The kingdom of goodness will appear. The kingdom of love will appear. That's what they're expecting. And Jesus tells a parable, and he said, a nobleman went to a distant region to receive royal power for himself and then return. So they're about, they're on the verge of going into the city and they're expecting an instantaneous kingdom. And Jesus tells them a parable as a way of saying that this kingdom you're expecting won't be instantaneous. It won't just appear. And if it does show up, it won't be easy because the empire will not let us just advocate for a world where everybody has enough without a cost. The empire won't just let us march into the city and change the way everything works because for the small percentage of people for whom this economy is working, for whom this politics, political system is working, they're not going to let it go just because it's unfair to other people. They're doing pretty well, and they're going to hold on to it, and they're going to defend it, not just with words, but with swords and with crosses. And so Jesus tells this story as a way, and it's a very similar story to the talents in Luke 19, as a way of preparing them for what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Now, this is where the alter this different lens really comes in. Let's bracket the old and understanding, the, the, the kind of the interpretation many of us grew up with. And let me ask you this question. What if Jesus tells this story and we are supposed to see Jesus not as the master in the story, but what if we're supposed to see Jesus as the third servant in the story? What if we're supposed to see Jesus as the one who goes into Jerusalem advocating for a different way of running the world, a more just, generous, compassionate way, a way where everybody has enough, a way where nobody is excluded, marginalized, forgotten, and trampled. And what if Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to advocate for this other thing called the kingdom of God. By the way, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like this master who goes on a journey and he comes back and this one servant gets thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. After all, this story is told in Holy, during Holy Week. This story is told as Jesus is on a collision course with a Roman cross. What if Jesus is explaining that his vision of the kingdom has put him in direct conflict with the empire and that's only going to end one way? I, I wonder 
how this interpretation lands with you. I wonder if it's opening up some, like, whoa, is it possible we've been taught to read the stories of the Bible, the stories of Jesus? Is it possible we've been taught to read them through the lens of empire? Is it, taught, is it possible that we've taught those of us who have lived our entire lives in the literally the biggest economy, military, economic superpower the world has ever known, is it possible we've been given a certain set of lenses to read the stories of Jesus that don't put us in conflict with the status quo? Is it possible that we have, re, we, have, we have so transfigured and transformed the person of Jesus in these stories to make him seem like a good citizen of the empire and not the challenge and instigator of the empire? And when I read this story, the question I always end up asking is, what do we do with this? Jesus is telling this story to explain that we're going into Jerusalem and it's not going to go, it's going to seem to not go well. I'm going to end up being executed because of this vision. By the way, when Jesus is crucified, what's, what do they put as the charge against him on top of his cross? King. What is a king? A king is the leader of a kingdom. A king is one who in their person embodies the vision of a kingdom. Jesus is accused of advocating for a different kingdom in a world where we have no king but Caesar. He's advocating for a different order for the world when the order of the world is working really well for the people for whom it's working really well. So what do we do with this? I think this is a story of Jesus saying, I'm going into Jerusalem and we're not playing ball. I'm not going to participate in an economy that's harming people. I'm not going to just pretend that the politics of Rome isn't harming people. I'm not going to just stand back and do nothing as I see people around me being harmed all of the time. What if, what if that alone is where we jumped off from this story? What if we refuse to allow other people to be harmed in our presence? What if churches as communities refuse to allow other people to be dehumanized, marginalized, and harmed? when we have a voice and a platform? What if we decide no one gets harmed without protest? It's Pride Weekend here in Nashville this weekend. And yesterday, which would be Saturday, um, our community gathered and we marched uh, in the Pride Parade. And as a community, we stand in solidarity with the LGBTQ plus community and say that um, we will use our voice and platform to advocate for equality and equity for LGBTQ plus people. What does it mean to use what we have been given to refuse to let other be harmed, others be harmed? So many of us over the past couple of years as we've seen just these unbelievable moments of injustice, as we see the growth of um, emboldened white supremacy, what would it mean to allow no one to be harmed? What would it mean to use our voice to call for justice and equity and peace? What would that look like? Perhaps the church should be seen not as the upholder of the status quo, but if we're going to follow in the sandals of Jesus, we should be those who are challenging the status quo when it's actively harming others. When the status quo is actively 
marginalizing, oppressing, and damaging other human beings, human beings who are image bearers of God, human beings who Jesus said, if you want to know where I'm located, you will find me always, every time, in those who are poor, those who are sick, those who are unhoused, those who are marginalized, those who are being forgotten and excluded. You will always find Jesus with those who are being thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You will find Jesus with those who have been excluded into the darkness. And we should always find the church and we should always find followers of Jesus standing right there with those people. I have a dear friend who says, if you're advocating for a particular group of people who are being mistreated and you're not being hit by the same rocks that are being thrown at them, you're not standing close enough. What if this story made us think about how we spend our time, how we spend our resources, how we invest our money? What if it made us think about what we're, how our presence and lives and how the way we've constructed our little mini worlds, what if it made us question and ask ourselves, who, in the, who is being harmed by the way my world runs? Who is being excluded? Who's being marginalized? Who's being harmed by my world working really well for me? William Herzog, uh, the second in his book, Parables as Subversive Speech, again, he calls this third servant a whistleblower. That he's, he's whistleblowing this entire exploitative economy and saying, this thing is not working. It's harming people. And here's what he says. The whistleblower is no fool. He realizes that he will pay a price, but he has decided to accept the cost rather than to, to pursue the exploitative path. That is my prayer for you and me, for the well and for Grace Point Church and every other church and every other follower of Jesus on the planet, that we will refuse to pursue the exploitative path, that even when it challenge, it's challenging and even when it costs us, even when it's difficult, even when it's heavy, even when it leads to a confrontation with how things are, that we will never prop up and embrace the status quo because the status quo isn't working for most people. And I believe the well is a community like that. I believe that you are a community like I'm hoping that Grace Point, our community is trying to become. A community who will always stand with the marginalized, the forgotten, the left out, the excluded, those who are being harmed that we will be willing to be hit with the same rocks because we're standing so close in solidarity. That's my hope. That's my prayer. And I think that's what will ultimately change the world.